Our coverage continues right now with Allison Camerata. Hi, Allison. Hi, Casey. Thanks so much. And good evening, everyone. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Allison Camerata. A new account tonight from one of the heroes who stopped the gunman in the LGBTQ nightclub shooting in Colorado Springs. Five people were shot dead, at least 19 others injured, as their family and friends grieve tonight. Authorities praised two patrons who took down the shooter, no doubt saving countless lives. One of the heroes served in the Army for nearly 15 years, and tonight he's haunted by the people he could not save. I was done doing this stuff. It was too much. And uh, I, I, I'm, you know, it came in handy. And, and I got to protect my, my kid. I lost my kid's boyfriend. I tried. I tried to have everybody in there. I still feel bad that there's five people. That, there's five people that didn't go home. And this guy, this guy, I told him while I was eating him, I said, I'm going to kill you, man, because you tried to kill my friends. My family was in there. They were out on a Saturday night, like millions of us, having a good time with friends, dancing at a nightclub, like millions of us have done. If only there were fewer hateful people out there and more Richard Fierros. We'll have more from that hero later. But now I want to bring in Senator John Hickenlooper of Colorado. Senator, thanks so much for being here. I'm so sorry for what your state is going through. Um, I want to just put up some stats right now because they're really striking. Anti-LGBTQ hate crimes are up 41 percent across the country Mm -hmm. since 2019. Um, And we've heard from people in the LGBTQ community in Colorado Springs who say that they've sensed hatred growing against them. So so why is this happening in Colorado? Well, I think it's happening all across the country. Uh, the The LGBTQ community is paying with their lives for the hate and the, and the violent rhetoric uh, that's getting spread all over the social media and, and, and really sometimes in the mainstream media and certainly all throughout our, our institutions. I mean, as you say, of course, it isn't just Colorado. Um, state legislatures across the country have introduced 344 anti-LGBTQ bills this year. Why are politicians, and primarily Republicans, of course, so freaked out about these issues? It's a good question. I, I don't know if it's their morality is that extreme or whether they somehow feel it's a political opportunity. I, I can't speak for them. I, I can't say that the problem is way beyond Republican or Democrat. You know, what political advantage can we have? Our country is being held victim. Uh, it's as, as if we're being terrorized by ourselves and our Worst enemies, Russia, China, they couldn't do more harm to us than having our own kids afraid to go to school, uh, people afraid to go worship and come together in a, in a, in a nightclub. It's, it's, it's taking us down slowly but steadily, and we need to, get, we need to come together as a country and say, all right, as, a, as a, a community, as a country, we need to do something about this together. And so, Senator, when um, a congresswoman like Lauren Boebert of your state tweets out, you know, hateful misinformation, as she has done about this community, and, you know, she she relies on that, um, you know, meme, if, if that's the right word, of kids being groomed, et cetera, what effect does that have? Well, again, 
it's hard to explain why she does this. I don't, is it whether it's a, a function of getting attention or, you know, getting her measure of celebrity, uh, but it certainly is hurtful. And there could be no argument that it fans the flames of hatred in people that are, in many cases, they're desperate about other things in their lives. They've got mental health issues and they twist off into violence. Uh, many times it's not the first time they've twisted off into violence, but they sometimes that fuse gets lit by, by hate speech and, and bigotry. Let's talk about that, because this suspect in this crime had a run in with police. He was arrested in 2019 after making a bomb threat um, and a threat of violence against his mother. And I think we actually have a little clip of what he was saying when the police arrived. This is your boy. I've got the f- sheds outside. Look at that. They got a beat on me. You see that right there? F- sheds got their f- rifles out. If they breach, I'm going to f- blow it to holy hell. So uh, go ahead and come on in, boys. Let's f- see it. Senator, explain why Colorado's red flag laws didn't stop someone like that from having guns. Well, I don't have any real facts. I, I was told the, this morning that the sheriff down in Colorado Springs uh, said that right when the red flags law was passed, that he wouldn't enforce it. Uh, they've had the lowest level of enforcement of any community in the state. Uh, but that just calls into question, how do we get this these laws to work? It's one thing to get them passed, but the communities have to believe in them. They have to embrace them, and it should not be a political dividing line. It's, we are way past the point where we can tolerate this kind of this political malfeasance. People, you know, making a political issue out of something that costs the lives of people just out enjoying a Saturday night. I mean, one of the problems, and I think we saw this in the Highland Park shooting case as well in Illinois, is that if it relies on the family to press charges, if it relies on the right. family to say that this person needs to go to prison, it doesn't work. And so, Senator, what's the... What's the solution for protecting this community in your state? Well, I think that we have to set a, a, a new and higher level for red flag laws where uh, you have to have some institutional framework by which the community can, you know, when someone has clearly demonstrated that they are uh, liable to go off the rails, they should, I mean, that, the, that video is, is chilling because here's someone who's threatening to do what he then eventually did in different form. But what he eventually did was go out and, and, and kill innocent people because he somehow got got amped up. We have to make sure people like that don't have access to guns. Or if they do have guns, we take them away. It would be so good to be able to do that before a mass shooting. Um, but we have this conversation, you know, all too often. But Senator John Higginlooper, thank you so much for your time. It was great to talk to you. You bet, Allison. Thanks for having me on. Now I want to bring in Sarah Kate Ellis, president and CEO of GLAAD. Also with us is pollster Frank Luntz and Tom Verney, a former NYPD detective. Guys, thanks so much for being here. Sarah, let me just start with you. So why is this community seeing more hateful vitriol and violence than it did even two years ago? 
Yeah, I think the politicians have found a way to bolster their careers and add a vote to their election. And they're using us as that political. We have a long history of the LGBTQ community being victimized, demonized by especially right wing media and Republicans. And I think that they found some sort of in here in just in the past year, honestly, even more so. It's like they put critical race theory aside and now they're focused on the transgender community and the LGBTQ community again. And they're trying to use us to bolster their career and their reputation. So, Frank, you heard me talking to the senator there, 344 anti-LGBTQ bills in state houses around the country. Why is that issue suddenly so politically active? I, I don't know. And I do know that there is a poison and toxicity that exists in our dialogue right now. And I know that much of it comes from social media. I don't seek to politicize anything for any reason because people are dying. And it's so much more important than trying to find partisan gain over it. I do see that there's a, a sickness in our society that that is harder and harder to take the more that... And I, my job is to listen to these people. My job is to hear what they have to say. And it's not a Republican or Democrat issue. It's a social media issue. It's a cultural issue. And there is so much hate and divisiveness, so much more than when I started in this profession. And I'm scared to death. I'm scared... What are you scared of? That is going to get even worse. I think this is only the beginning. We look at these and we say never again. Well, I'm afraid that it's going to be again and again until we can get a hold of how we talk to each other, how we treat each other. The fact is, the more faith we have, the more civility we have, the more understanding, empathy we have, the less likely this is to happen. But I don't see us moving in that direction at all. Tom, put your detective hat on for us because you've worked on these issues for so long. And can you just explain the motive and mindset of a deranged person who goes into a nightclub where people are dancing mm-hmm. and having a great time <clears throat> and thinks that by shooting, killing five people, what, people aren't going to be gay anymore? I mean, what's the thought process there? You know, as, as he just mentioned, so we... Here's here's a breaking news. Uh, We live in a racist, sexist, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic country. This is stuff that is learned behavior, passed down through generations. And unless we address that root issue, that in upon itself, everything stems from that. And then when you add into the mix, you know, the free flowing of, of guns in our country, which are awash in every neighborhood of every state, now you have people who are a few sandwiches short of a picnic, like this guy, who get their hands on, on a weapon and then go out and then massacre people just trying to enjoy themselves. I can't really explain what is behind the, the methodology of a psychopath. Um, what I can tell you is that we see a reoccurring theme. And as I mentioned on uh, CNN Newsroom yesterday, once we get into the background of this individual which they now have, you know, coming through his social media and, and talking to the people that he knows, we see a reoccurring theme of people who are extremely angry and have all kinds of, of, of vitriol that they need to just let out. And as many people in government are guilty of, they are fueling this fire of people. And if they're on the edge to go out and, and snap and do something, that maybe that's all it takes is someone of, of authority to, to give them that green light to do it. And it's just sickening. It's sickening what's happening in this, in this country. It is sickening. Um, Sarah Kate, 
Some parents and politicians seem to be very freaked out about drag story time. And in fact, we have some video of like masked people with guns Mm -hmm. at some of these events in Nevada. I think this one might be, uh, yeah, in in Nevada. Um, People, do, do you understand why this freaks people out so much? And do you want to address the people who fear, who have so much great fear about this, that they protest that their kids are somehow being groomed? Yeah, so we're about to release a study where our news and rapid response team has been watching and looking at this and sort of pulling back to see what is going on here. There have been about 125 attacks or threats to drag events in this country this year, mostly from June to now. And they're throwing firebombs. There was a firebomb a couple of weeks ago at a drag event at a donut shop. Um, it's, it's, these are actually coordinated and they're very thoughtful. This is not just, I think, um, a bipartisan issue. I think that this is a very coordinated The same people who were going after marriage equality when we were trying to move marriage forward have now put their money and their energy against this. If you look at it's getting more violent, isn't it? I mean, marriage equality didn't have this kind of level of. Well, we didn't. You know, last year we saw 150 anti-LGBTQ bills. This year we see 344. If you look at what how they're written, they are written in the exact same language, state by state by state. So they are being fueled across this country by money and a group of people that are anti-LGBTQ. Drag culture has been around as long as people have been around. Drag performers have been putting on shows and reading books, and they're the funnest people in the world. Now that they have a coordinated attack, and you're seeing nearly 100, it's 124 attacks since June, pretty much, on drag performances. And what's the answer? The answer is, I think that the answer is the politicians need to stop. The social media platforms need to be held accountable. And I think that we need better gun safety reform. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you were saying and what you were saying about social media. Everybody's in agreement, but we can't seem to do it. Because we can't talk to each other anymore. We can't have these conversations. We demonize each other rather than listening to each other. Thank you all. Really appreciate it. Sorry it's under these circumstances. And we're going to have much more for you from that hero, Richard Fierro. And then in politics, some high-profile Republicans speaking out against Donald Trump trying to make a comeback. Who are these never-again Trumpers? The battle to lead the Republican Party is heating up ever since former President Trump announced his third run for president. Former Republican House Speaker Paul Ryan coining a new category of anti-Trumper in an interview with ABC. I governed with them and I'm very proud of those days. I'm proud of the accomplishments of the tax reform, the deregulation of criminal justice reform. I'm really excited about the judges we got on the bench not just the Supreme Court, but throughout the judiciary. But I am a never again Trumper. Why? Because I want to win. And we lose with Trump. It was really clear to us in 18, in 20, and now in 2022. 
Okay, joining me now to discuss, we have pollster and communications analyst Frank Luntz back with us, and he has been talking to Republican voters. Okay, so Frank, we have a clip of this, um, but first just give me an overview of these are all people who had voted for Trump, and now after the midterms they feel differently? Most of them do feel differently, and most of them voted for Trump twice, not just once. So these were part of his core base, and they didn't even know what the conversation was going to be about because I didn't tell them. So we got into this, and I was shocked at what they had to say. Okay, so let's watch a clip of this. Okay, if the race was between, and you had to choose now, who would you vote for, Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis? Raise your hands physically if you would choose Trump in that contest. One, two, three. Raise your hand if you would choose Ron DeSantis. All the rest of you. So what did they tell you about that? Uh, and hopefully we'll play the clip of it. They told me that they're tired. They're just worn out. They still believe in what Donald Trump said, and they believe in what he tried to do. But they're tired of the chaos. They're tired of, I use the phrase Michigas, but I don't think Trump understands those words. And they're just simply worn out. And they want someone who they believe will bring their ideas, their ideologies, their vision to success. And they simply don't think that's Donald Trump anymore. They also told you that they thought it was too much about Donald Trump. So here's that moment. Let's watch that. Not too much about Donald Trump. And he used to be the stand-in for the establishment and, uh, and, and other people against us. And, and now it's all about him. I don't think they voted for Biden. They voted against Trump. And I think DeSantis gives a better... Uh, reasoning to vote for him and not against him. So interesting, Frank, because I'm not sure Donald Trump has changed. Well, I'm not sure how he would react watching this right now. I think he'd find some reason to dismiss it. And I know we're going to be talking about Jay Leno, and I want to foreshadow it because Leno got involved in an argument that I had with Donald Trump. How? So because Trump tried to get me fired from my news outlets. I worked for Fox News at the time. And CBS and Trump went out of his way because he hates these focus groups. He hates listening to real people. And they had a lot of negative things to say about him. And he blew up. And Leno, as I will say later on, came to my aid. But we've got polling data now that was done by the premise poll, uh, completed on Saturday evenings. This is 48 hours. And it has Joe Biden now defeating Donald Trump by six points. But Ron DeSantis has a four point lead over Biden. You have a 10-point swing between Trump and DeSantis, and that's a lot at this point. That's really fascinating, Frank, but it is a lot at this point. Do you think that as people, I mean, Ron DeSantis is not in the race. Obviously, when somebody enters the race, the bloom is off the rose a little bit, and people get to know them, and they're not a shiny new object. Do you think that that would happen? I mean, do you think that that's how it normally goes? That's a fair point, but they look at what he achieved in Florida, a landslide. Four new Republican congressmen taking the positions, these tough positions that Trump took in Washington. DeSantis actually got it done in Florida. And while there is still some controversy about him, voters are looking at him with a fresh light and he can actually get some Democrats that Donald Trump could never touch. You know, what's interesting, Frank, is that it's the midterms that got that. It sounds as though that was the tipping point. Okay, so not an insurrection on the Capitol. Mishandling of covid 
All of the things, the criticisms that people could level against Donald Trump, people still stuck with him. And then his candidates don't win in the midterms. That was the tipping point? And he went after, and what we actually have in the, in the premise poll is that DeSantis is now pulled even with Trump. One asks why, and the answer from the voters, because they're just tired and worn out of the chaos, of the disputes, of the arguments, of the hearings and the task forces and everything. And they want to go back to a sense of normalcy. Mm. So this is not CNN polling, obviously, that we have, and we haven't confirmed all of that, but you have your own polling and data that shows all of it. It's just really, it's really interesting to see how people feel today and if it sticks, because sometimes we've seen it turn around. And what I hope is that we don't tear each other apart. It goes back to the very first segment. There are, there are consequences. There's damage. There are lives at stake. That there's some things that are more important than an election. It's called the next generation. What example are we setting for our children and the people who come after us? I think it's pretty sorry. And I'm hoping that the next election will get our act together and not tear each other apart. Okay, Frank, thank you for all of this. I look forward to talking Jay Leno later. So we'll see you in a little while. Meanwhile, police in Idaho still searching for the killer of four university students. And the brutal way in which they were killed puts this crime into a different category. So we're going to discuss that next. It's been one week since the stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students. No weapon has been found and still no suspect. After initially saying there was no risk to the community of Moscow, Idaho, police are now not so sure. Joining us now is journalist Mara Escampo and former detective Tom Verney is back. Also joining us, we have Mary Ellen O'Toole, a retired FBI profiler. Mary Ellen, I want to start with you. Um, And not to get too grisly, but... Someone who would stab four college students, possibly sleeping, the amount of um, gore and uh, effort that it takes to stab four people, what does that tell you about who this suspect is? Well, a couple of things really stand out to me, and one of them is that this is someone that has experience with that knife. Um, That was a weapon of choice, and I'm not suggesting that he's committed a similar murder to this, but he he does have experience with that knife. It's also someone that's comfortable getting blood all over him, unless he stabbed them through their comforters, but still, he would have had blood on him, and he and there's no information that's come out so far that there was an effort to clean up the crime scene. And then lastly, I would say that it, there still is a possibility that this offender did not know these victims, well, that he brought his emotions um, to the crime scene um, and he acted out on them at that point. And I think what is really important to understand is that based on what he's described as doing at the scene, he didn't come there to talk. He came there in the middle of the night, early morning hours. People were in the home. He just started to stab. So that says that he wasn't trying to right a wrong or correct something that had happened earlier that evening. He came there with the intent to to do what he did. Yeah, I've been wondering about that too, uh, Mary Ellen and Tom. I mean, you know, the police aren't saying serial killer, but 
Look, I was a crime reporter for five years. And what we learned when I was a crime reporter was that stabbing is often a crime of passion because it's so intimate. You have to be, you're touching the person. You have to be right next to the person. A gun, you can be at a distance and kill someone. Not with stabbing. You're looking at them. Sometimes you're talking to them. That's why, as you know, Tom, I'll have to tell you, they often look at the um, significant other of the person when somebody is stabbed, because it is a crime of passion. So do you think it is possible it's a serial killer, or what do you think of what Mary Ellen's saying? Yeah, I think Mary Ellen is, is on, on point. Uh, you know, when, when you talk about someone getting shot, you know, being shot is not pleasant. Uh, but nonetheless, when, when someone is stabbed, especially stabbed multiple times, right, that's someone who, the stabber, uh, is someone who's either high on drugs, uh, someone who is psychologically out there and having a moment, uh, in many cases, though, we see that this becomes a domestic incident of some kind, right? Uh, where the, the boyfriend and or girlfriend or significant other stabs the other person in a, in a fit of rage or jealous rage or whatever it may be. Uh, what's interesting about this case is that it's so unclear as to where we're going and uh, what direction we're going in. But clearly, the person who committed this uh, heinous act was someone who's seriously troubled. Uh, so, yeah, the community should be on notice until we get a better lead as to who or, or who we're looking for. Yeah. Mara, it's so mysterious. I mean, first of all, there were two other roommates home. We don't know what they heard, if they were awake. And then the idea that they invited people over, that they had people come over yeah. before they called the police strikes me as peculiar. But maybe they were so completely petrified and freaked out that they needed support. Uh, hard to know. But the community, of course, would be terrified. This is too unsolved. Yeah, it's hard to overstate how unusual this case is. I mean, you have four college students who are stabbed to death in their sleep in a small town of 25,000 people that hasn't seen a single murder in seven years. There's no suspect. There's no murder weapon, no sign of forced entry. Apparently, a lot of people knew the code to the keypad. The killer is on the loose, and police say that the community may be in danger. And to your point, all these other unanswered questions. How could the two surviving roommates have slept through four of their roommates being murdered in the same house? Yeah. How could the killer disappear without a trace when a crime that is very messy? Stabbing is messy. It leaves a lot of evidence behind. As we heard, it, the killer would have been covered in blood. So there were so many questions. This is not your typical whodunit. I cover a lot of crime. I I have not seen anything like this. And so, Mary Ellen, does this lead you to believe a serial killer is on the loose? Well, I think it would be too premature for me to offer an opinion on that. But it does take me back to the case of Ted Bundy, who was a serial killer in the Northwest. Once he escaped from jail in um, Utah, he traveled down to the Chi Omega house in Tallahassee, Florida, and he committed multiple murders inside that house. And they were a mess. So uh, we, we've seen this happen before. This is not the first time that um, you have an individual who goes from one type of murdering to another type of murdering. But at this point, I think it's too soon to offer an opinion on that. Yeah, I hear you. Um, Tom, nowadays, there are so many cameras around. Mm -hmm. There's so many surveillance cameras. There's so many doorbell cameras. People have cameras. And right. so you see a little bit of the surveillance <laughs> video of two of the roommates who were out at a food truck beforehand. Mm -hmm. But are you surprised that the police aren't releasing more video or haven't said more yet? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you have to think about how much camera footage they have to actually go through. So they were out at, a, at an establishment. They, they were at a food truck, right? So there's cameras in both those places. I would have to imagine there's cameras all over that campus. 
Uh, so they're trying to, you know, follow the breadcrumbs, right? Going back from the last known location that we saw these these individuals alive, and then go forward to where they were found. Uh, that is being done, and also they're collecting mounds of forensic, uh, you know, evidence there in the dorm room. There'll be tons of DNA evidence that they have to go through as well. So there's a lot of stuff to de- deconstruct at that scene. Uh, it, it's 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 a awesome task that they have in front of them. And between the local, state, and federal authorities involved, I, I would hope that that is expediting the situation a little bit if they're hopefully working all together on the same page. And hopefully that will lead to some sort of a direction to go in uh, you know, by the more evidence that they can collect. Obviously, we will stay on this mystery. Um, Tom, Mara, Mary Ellen, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. Okay, now to this. Uh, they were embryos frozen 30 years ago, and now they're newborn twins, what some are calling the world's oldest babies. Their parents are here to share their amazing story and why they made this choice. That's next. In April 1992, the world was a very different place. Bill Clinton was running for president. Phones still had cords. And two babies that were born just weeks ago were frozen as embryos. They were kept protected in liquid nitrogen at about 200 degrees below zero for nearly 30 years. Until October 31st, little Lydia and Timothy Ridgway were born from what is considered the longest frozen embryos to ever result in a live birth. This is according to the National Embryo Donation Center. Joining us now are the parents of these little twins, Rachel and Philip Ridgway. Great to see you. Great to see you guys. And how nice that twins are sleeping at the same time. You know, we've gotten pretty good at coordinating that now with bottles and feeds. They're pretty, they're predictable at this age. Well done, Rachel. I had twins myself. So well done. And uh, (laughs) that is, you guys have already accomplished um, more than half of the battle. So Rachel, what, what made you want to adopt, for lack of a better word, these embryos? So in other words, not your own um, genetic material and um, knowing that they were 30 years old. Uh, so for us, we we have four biological children already, and the journey of having them gave us an appreciation for children and pregnancy because the first three required a little assistance. And we'd heard about embryo adoption through our process of having children. And the idea for me of giving birth to my adopted child seemed like a dream come true. I just, I enjoy being pregnant. I'm able to do it well. And it seemed like kind of a no-brainer for me in regards to why, why wouldn't I do that? We also have a passion for life, and we believe that each of these children in the freezer are indeed children that need saving. And for us, when we went to the NEDC, we were looking at who was the most needy, who was waiting the longest for a mom and a dad. And these guys happened to be those embryos that had, as far as we could tell, been waiting at the NEDC longer than any other embryos that were there. So interesting. And so, uh, Philip, did you have any concerns or did your doctor have any concerns about the fact that they'd been frozen for 30 years? No. And in fact, when we visited the NEDC for the first time, Dr. Gordon told us there there is no such thing as like frozen embryo syndrome. As far as they know, there's no known shelf life and that these, these children can stay frozen on ice indefinitely. 
So there's there's no concern about about the length of time that they were frozen. There was there was some concern about the the freezing technologies at the time whether they any of the the embryos would survive the thawing process. But once they're thawed, they're they're just like any other any other um, baby at that stage of development. Modern medicine is incredible. I mean, that's just remarkable to hear. I think that the previous, the longest record before you guys was 27 years. Before that, it was 24 years. And now it's 30 years. It's just, it's incredible. And so did you know, did you know when you adopted these embryos that they were the oldest in the country? Well, when you go into the NEDC, they have a a wall that with some pictures of the record holder. So in my mind, I knew, okay, so the record's 27 years. It didn't really hit me until after they, we had found out that two of the three they transferred implanted, and then we had our first ultrasound and everything looked well. And then it kind of crossed my mind, oh, so these guys are probably the new, new, the new record holders, but didn't really think much of it after that until Mark Mellinger from National Emory Donation Center reached out to us later in the year to talk about um, the fact that they would be now the new record holders, Lord willing, that they would come to, to come to birth. Um, and Philip, I hear what you guys are saying that you, you basically consider it rescuing these embryos and that you felt that they weren't being chosen um, by other you know, potential parents. I guess that my question is, you know, there are tens of thousands of frozen embryos, maybe hundreds of thousands of frozen embryos around the country. You can't give birth to all of them. I mean, what is your, what's your feeling about that? No, that's a good point. I, I think there's, there's, there's sort of two problems. One is the, the upstream problem of there's more and more you know, embryos created and then frozen every day. But then there's the downstream problem of what do you do with the embryos that already are frozen? And we can't do anything about the, the upstream problem, but we can do something about, about the downstream problem. And yeah, adopting the, these two children may have been just a drop in the bucket, but these are two children that are no longer sitting in liquid nitrogen waiting to be adopted. So whether it was two children or, or however many, we, we accomplished what, what we set out to accomplish, which, which is to, to yeah, rescue children. And did you guys consider adopting, you know, traditional adoption, kids who have already been born? No, that was never really a a thought process for us, for our journey. I know for some people, you know, it definitely is a consideration. But for us and for our family, uh, the idea of, like I said before, giving birth to my adopted child, knowing that there are some, you know, kids still struggle uh, with separation, even as infants, and to be able to avoid that trauma for them was very appealing to me. And then really giving these children value. A lot of embryos, a lot of people look at embryos as somehow less than human. And the reality is, is that God created every single embryo, that it's because of him that they are that they are living, that they are given life, and they each have value. They're made in his image. And we really wanted to show how Timothy and Lydia were embryos, but they're the same children. They were the same children now as they were then. They were just smaller. And so we really wanted to give these children in particular, these embryos that are frozen, a voice and show the world that they deserve life and that they should be given the opportunity to have life, you know, one parent and couple at a time. Well, it's really interesting to talk to you guys. Obviously, there are all sorts of 
ethical questions. I mean, you know, science in some ways has outpaced um, our ethical decisions about some of this stuff. And, you know, you guys are just touching on all of that. Um, but it's really interesting to talk to you and to learn that after 30 years, you, you're able to have healthy kids from frozen embryos. So thanks so much for uh, taking the time and for talking to us tonight. Oh, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Good luck with them. Okay, now to this. Jay Leno discharged from the hospital more than a week after suffering serious burns in a gasoline fire. He's released a photo that reveals some of his injuries. So we'll talk about it. Comedian Jay Leno is out of the hospital after being treated for burn injuries. The former Tonight Show host, who's an avid collector of cars, was injured in a gasoline fire a little more than a week ago, suffering burns to his face, chest, and hands. Doctors at the Grossman Burn Center in Los Angeles say they are optimistic that he will make a full recovery. The hospital releasing a photo of Leno with some of the medical staff. We're back now with Mara Escampo and Frank Luntz. We're also joined by Charlotte Alter, the national correspondent for The Time magazine. Um, Guys, I'm so happy to hear this because I was on the air last week when we first got word that this had happened, and it sounded really bad. It sounded as though he was not going to be out of the hospital in a week, and so I'm surprised that he's made this kind of recovery. It's great to see these photos, to see him recovering and healing. But I also really love that he posted these photos of him as he is in the healing journey. Because we live in the age of transparency, right? Everybody shares everything. But it's not necessarily the age of authenticity. People aren't really real about what they're going through. So when someone like Jay Leno posts this as he's healing, not after the healing is done, but as he's going through it, I think with other people who are going through it, it really offers a lot of comfort. And if we push in on that photo a little bit, and I'm not sure if we can, you can see that he's still swollen. I mean, I can see that the, the right side of his face, so the left side of our camera, it, it does look like he's burned. I mean, you know, it doesn't, he doesn't look entirely just like Jay Leno there. Um, and, but, but here again, I mean, I think that it really helps to see him standing and looking virtually normal, Charlotte. Yeah, and, you know, reports from the hospital say he's his old self, he's joking around, he's bringing cookies for the staff. I also thought it was nice that he posted a photo with the nurses who treated him um, and sort of, you know, again, shared the details of his journey to kind of give credit where due to the people who helped him through it. So tell us your Jay Leno story. I was at the car show in uh, Pebble Beach, and Trump had actually helped get me suspended from both Fox and CBS. It was working. Is that right? What year was that? This was uh, 2015, and I was very upset. And I'm at the car show. He comes over, and he's watching this because he follows politics. So he says to me, how are you doing? I said, I'm not doing great. He said, I'm going to talk to you. Now, hold on. Now, he's the, the king of the car show. He's in charge. This is the, the Provence. I don't know. It's the, it's the best show in America for cars. He comes and sits with me. And he says to me, I'm not going to leave you until you feel okay. So whatever it's going to take, he made me laugh. He, he gave me advice. He's taken me to his, uh, his garage several times. This guy is a prince. And I am so happy that he's back out. I want him back on TV. And everyone who's listening should know that not only does he appear like a nice guy in private or on TV, He's a wonderful human being, and he really did. 
you brought me back. That's so, really so nice. So, Jay, I don't know which camera to look at. There we go. <laughs> Jay, get well, get healthy, and you are awesome, and I owe you. I will donate to any charity. I will do go anywhere for you because you did it for me. You heard it here, Jay. He'll donate to any charity. So get well and let Frank know what charity you want. Frank, that's such a nice story. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thanks, guys. Thanks Thank for you. being here. All right, America is facing one tragedy after another, from mass shootings to political violence. What can our leaders do to break this cycle? We have presidential historian John Meacham on how to heal the soul of America. John's next. New details tonight about the attack on the LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs that killed five people and injured 19 others. Authorities are praising two heroes at that club who took down the shooter, saving countless lives. And President Biden releasing a statement on the tragedy, saying in part, quote, places that are supposed to be safe spaces of acceptance and celebration should never be turned into places of terror and violence. Yet it happens far too often. We must drive out the inequities that contribute to violence, Against LGBTQI plus people, we cannot and must not tolerate hate. I want to bring in now presidential historian John Meacham. He's the author of And There Was Light. He also occasionally advises President Biden. Um, John, great to see you as always. It seems like, you know, every week we, do, we report on stories of violence. We report on stories of political violence. We have so much toxicity, obviously, in our national dialogue. It feels like the worst it's ever been. I know, well, maybe you'll tell me it isn't. But can you put this in some historical context for us? Sure. Uh, these tragedies unfold, and they unfold because there's evil. Uh, this is going to sound rather grand. Uh, but what we saw in this incredibly sad story that had an element of, of heroism is the best and the worst of us. And it's tragic and terrible that we have to have horrible things unfold for us to see this kind of, of heroism, but that's the nature of, of reality. What we, the way the life of the nation works, I think, is the way our lives work. We are called to do the right thing. We're called to accept others. We're, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, uh, as, as scripture and every moral tradition uh, orders folks to do, encourages folks to do. And it's incredibly difficult. And the extremity of this kind of mass shooting is the worst manifestation of the darkest impulses in, in human nature. And so our answer has to be overcoming darkness with light. I was thinking about Dr. King uh, this weekend, uh, his sermon after the terrible uh, church bombing, the 16th Street Church in, uh, in Birmingham in, in 1963, the fall of 1963. And his refrain in that sermon for the funeral for those uh, young women was who, by the way, the, the subject that day was the love that forgives. And it was Youth Sunday, and they were on their way to conduct the whole service when Klansmen dynamited the church. He talked about how we had to find some way to bring good out of evil. And I think that the story of the heroes of this uh, tragedy are examples of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, do you think that is, is what we're seeing political violence? Is that how you would categorize this? 
Yes, it's, 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 these are hate crimes. Uh, I know there's debate about that, but of course, uh, this is uh, driven by, uh, by, by the specifics of the case. We have to wait. Uh, so all, all, the, all the predictable caveats there. But there is a climate uh, of hate, of seeing the other, not simply as someone to allow them to be your neighbor and have them live out their lives and you live out yours, which is what a democracy and what a moral society is supposed to do. Instead, there is this uh, intensity out there that we can't see each other as neighbors. We have to see each other as enemies. And it's up to all of us to say no, that that cannot be the way we are. That if we don't love our neighbors as ourselves, we have to attempt to do so and to fight against and stand against. I don't want to use the word fight. We have to stand against the objectification of other people. It's un-American. If I may, from my tradition, it's unchristian. It's it's immoral. It's unjust. It's wrong. And it's not that much more complicated. I just read President Biden's um, comment and his reaction to this. And of course, every president has had to deal with some sort of awful, sickening, heartbreaking violence. And here's just here's just a few examples after um, mass shootings. The evil did come to Buffalo. It's come to all too many places. Manifest in gunmen who massacred innocent people in the name of hateful and perverse ideology rooted in fear and racism. The shooter in El Paso posted a manifesto online consumed by racist hate. In one voice, our nation must condemn racism, bigotry, and white supremacy. The vile, hate-filled poison of anti-Semitism must be condemned and confronted everywhere and anywhere it appears. Americans were targeted because we're a country that has learned to welcome everyone, no matter who you are or who you love. And hatred towards people because of sexual orientation, regardless of where it comes from, it's a betrayal of what's best in us. Michelle and I know several members of Emmanuel AME Church. There is something particularly heartbreaking about a death happening in a place in which we seek solace and we seek peace, in a place of worship. Obviously, John, that montage could have gone on much longer because it happens all too often. In history, are there presidents who have been able to successfully bring down the temperature and, and done it well? Sure. Uh, it ebbs and flows uh, because this is, as we've talked about, this is the human heart and in the perversion of, of appetites and ambitions. There are, you know, the way presidents speak about these things does matter because it does set a tone. And people can be skeptical of that. I, I, I understand that. And, and, you know, even President Obama at one point said it's, it's time we're, we're past thoughts and prayers. 
Uh, and let me just put in one one quick thing here. I'm a gun owner. Uh, the safest place to be a duck is somewhere near me with a gun. But my view is these assault weapons, these weapons of war that have come to our streets and our nightclubs and our schools must be restricted to the military. It's not, it's not even particularly a debate, uh, it seems to me. Uh, and for, the, for those who, in my native region in particular, in the South, who say, oh no, this is an encroachment on the Second Amendment, my test is this. What if one life is saved because these assault weapons are made more difficult to obtain? Just one. And what if it's your spouse or your friend or your child? And so we cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good for that. A president's uh, manners, a president's tone uh, can affect the temperature. And you mentioned it before, uh, President Biden, I'm honored that he's a friend and I help him when I can. I think he's particularly well equipped to do this. I think President Clinton did it uh, after Oklahoma City. Uh, Oklahoma City is actually a pretty good example here because President Clinton had just had a terrible election, partly because he had banned assault weapons in 1994 in a bill that Joe Biden was critical in doing. And there's the terrible attack on the federal building in Oklahoma City. Yeah. President, yeah. 1995, President Clinton goes to Oklahoma City. He, he takes this moment and, and talks incredibly well. That same season, George Herbert Walker Bush, who had just been defeated three years before, resigns from the NRA because the NRA had put out a fundraising letter referring to federal agents as jackbooted thugs. Mm. And so Bush, the senior Bush, resigned from, from there in, in a very important letter. So yes, it, it, it can make a difference. What will make the biggest difference is if we all remember that the, what runs America, what should run America is the Declaration of Independence. And the Declaration of Independence begins with that majestic idea that we're all created equal and we're all endowed by our creator, no matter our color, our sexual orientation, no matter what. And that's our mission state. That's what we said we wanted to be. No one forced that on us. That's what folks who look like me decided to say they believed in the late 18th century. We're now yeah. in the 21st yeah. century. And that idea, that idea has to be made real and it has to be begin and end with a mutual respect for each other. Well, John Meacham, thank you for reminding us um, of all of that. Really great to talk to you, as always. All right, I want to bring in now CNN's John Berman and Republican strategist Joe Pinion. Also, Charlotte Alter is back. Guys, great to have you here. So that was um, inspiring, everything that, that John Meacham just said. Um, but we also need to talk about the hideous crime that has happened and that uh, crimes against LGBTQ communities are up 41% since 2019. Something is going on and politicians are seizing on it, John. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. And that was a wonderful conversation you just had with John Meacham. And, and parts of it are uplifting, but parts of it also you can read is quite bleak. John talks about how there are moments of light in these situations. There were heroes there. But the other way of looking at that is it wasn't enough. And I know you're going to play some sound from, um, from one of these heroes that I had a chance to speak to earlier 
who in our conversation was just broken up that he couldn't save more people, that there were five families without their loved ones tonight, and no amount of heroism stopped that. And there is something going on, and it's not just guns, and it's not just racism, it's something insidious in our culture. And just when it happens at a, at a, at a gay bar, at a gay club, you know, I'm paraphrasing something a friend once told me, but if you, if you can't be gay at a gay bar, where, where can you? If you're not safe there, where are you safe? Um, and should we play that now, guys, in the control room? Or, or do we want to, I mean, do we want to play? Okay, hold, hold that thought, because I do want to play. That was an incredible interview that you did. Well, we he were, was incredible. He was incredible, John. Incredible. I mean, again, these beacons of light among us that we can uh, draw strength from. Uh, but, but, Joe, in the meantime, you know, politicians are seizing on this. Right. Um, and uh, there have been something like 344 bills uh, in state houses across the country um, this year that are considered anti-LGBTQ. What is it? It's, they're stemming from Republicans, let's be honest. And so what is it that is so threatening to Republicans? Well, look, I, I think we need to take a step back, right? I think I would seize on what John said in the aftermath of Oklahoma City, right? Where those famous words by Bill Clinton, you have lost too much, but you have not lost everything and you have not lost America. And it feels as if increasingly we have lost America. Um, reminded of that old town in Illinois, Carlock, Illinois, uh, where we used to quite literally bury people in different cemeteries, not by race, but by political affiliation. The worst crime in humanity, apparently, to be a Republican forced to spend eternity next to a Democrat. And so I bring that up because of the fact uh, that when you look at what has happened here, we have the divisions in our politics and in many ways are fueling the lesser angels that have led us to where we are. For sure. But do you accept that it is Republicans that are fueling the nasty talk about transgender I, I, folks and LGBTQ. I think we have to do this. I think that we have to stop painting with the broad brush. I think that the reality is that there is an insidious, horrific strain of uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, issues that are permeating society. And yes, perhaps they are getting more oxygen on the right side of the aisle. But I also think that there is something that we have to talk about, rigorous honesty, as it pertains to getting to the bottom of this issue, is that most of the people that I know are not anti-LGBTQ, but they do have issues with some of the issues that are being promoted in the name of that movement. And I think that we have to draw a sharp line and say that no person should ever be harmed because of who they love or how they live. No person should ever uh, feel as if there is not a safe space, uh, to your point, that if you cannot be gay in a gay bar, then where can you be gay? But certainly, I think, again, uh, the problem has become that all of this has been conflated as to one thing. If I disagree with you on this issue, then I am hostile to everything that you stand for. I think that's a real problem in our politics that has bled, up, bled over into things that have made it more difficult for us to have these honest conversations. Charlotte, hold that thought. We have to take a quick break and we will come back and address all of this. Stay with us, everybody. When we come back, we also want to discuss John's incredible interview with Richard Fierro, one of the heroes who took down the gunman in Colorado Springs. So we have a lot more to hear from him after the break. Authorities are praising two patrons who took down the shooter in that Colorado Springs LGBTQ nightclub. One of those heroes, who served in the Army for nearly 15 years, told John Berman tonight that he did it to protect his family. 
John is back with us along with Joe Pinion and Charlotte Alter. Charlotte, let's just watch this hero describe this and then I'll get your reaction. I got to protect my, my kid. I lost my kid's boyfriend. I tried. I tried to have everybody in there. I still feel bad that there's five people. That, there's five people that didn't come home. And this, this guy, I told him while I was eating him, I said, I'm going to kill you, man, because you tried to kill my friends. My family was in there. Oh, my gosh. It's so awful, Charlotte. I mean, and he's the hero. He survived. And he's, this is how traumatized he will be forever, basically. Well, it's also amazing. I mean, this is a, this is a man who served his country for, what, 15 years, and now he has to come back here and use skills that he learned in the line of duty to protect his family just on a night out trying to have fun with their friends. I mean, the thing that I keep thinking about this is that, you know, as John Meacham said earlier, uh, you know, there has always been a struggle between good and evil in this country. But one of the things that's new uh, is a social media ecosystem that amplifies the evil at the expense of the good. And I think that that's one of the reasons that we are continuing to struggle with this over and over and over again in ways that feel so new, because uh, this hate gets mainstreamed in a way where it can spread from one person to another, even if they've never met each other, even if they don't live in the same community, even if they never share any physical space. Um, so it makes these vile views so much more infectious. Um, John, it was an incredible interview that you did with him and what just listening to him and him processing out loud what he lived through. Let's listen to just a little bit more of it. This whole thing was a lot... My daughter and wife should have never experienced combat in Colorado Springs. And everybody in that building experienced combat that night, not to their own accord, but because they were forced to. I told the mayor, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a hero. I'm just a guy that wanted to protect his kids and his wife. And I still didn't get to protect her boyfriend. It's so awful, John. I mean, but that is exactly what Charlotte was saying. His daughter and wife should never have had to experience combat in, in Colorado Springs. No one in that bar, no one in that bar should have ever had to go through anything like that. And to hear Richard Fierro, again, you know, retired Army major, work through this, he's trying to process it. He doesn't want to be called a hero. He undoubtedly saved lives. He saved, uh, I don't know how many lives there. But to him, the tragedy is that there were those who died still that he couldn't save everyone because there was evil in there, because there was someone, and we still need to learn more. I know, we still need to learn more, but it seems possible, at least, there's some deranged person who thought that a drag show was a threat to him somehow. That's right. And by the way, I mean, there are politicians, one of whom is in Colorado, Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, who had tweeted out, you know, that basically these sorts of things groom children. I mean, she had these inflammatory tweets, and now she's saying that this event is awful, but do you connect those things? Look, I I think that the problem that we have is that we live in a world where we are more connected than ever before, and also so incredibly isolated by virtue of the advancements that we have made in technology. And so how do you rectify those two things? How do you rectify somebody saying, I am uncomfortable with drag shows being exposed to children, but at the same time saying these are consenting adults who just wanted to enjoy a beer and now have been irreparably harmed for the rest of their and natural life. And what's the answer to that? 
And I think the hard truth is that we don't necessarily have all the answers, but we have to start uh, by having, again, rigorous honesty with ourselves to understand completely uh, that no person should be forced uh, to carry this burden where they feel as if they can be safe, not even within their own skin. Yeah. Uh, Charlotte, one of the problems is that on social media, people think that it's their community. In other words, something could be happening in Nevada that they're not comfortable with, and suddenly it sends them into overdrive of panic. We've seen this time and again where they think they have to do something about it. Well, this is this is the thing, and I and I appreciate you sort of highlighting uh, how much this has been, particularly in the last year, driven by Republican politicians who have leaned into scare tactics about LGBTQ teachers or other figures uh, who they think might be grooming children. You know, a, an allegation which has no real basis in fact. Um, and so I, I do think it is hard to argue that there is no political element to this when you have an entire party that has really capitalized on some of the, the parental angst around this to try to score political points. Um, and of course, there are going to be some, as you said, John, deranged people who take those ideas and twist them into some kind of hateful ideology. I think it's also important how we have the conversation, right? I think that uh, pretending that people's anxieties and their uh, personal bias does not exist is probably a really bad way to start the conversation. I think we have to confront them head on and say that perhaps, yes, there are legitimate reasons for people to be concerned, but here is on a case-by-case basis, whether it's on a school district-by-school district basis, why those confer- those fears should either be rightfully acknowledged or why there's no, there's no basis in reality. So I think, again, what ends up happening is that something so unimaginable and so tragic happens where the rage overwhelms our our ability and our capacity yeah. to really be able to have that And sometimes it's both. I mean, sometimes it's, um, they don't need to have the fear, but they have the fear. And so, you know, we, we just continue to have these conversations. Guys, thank you very much. I really appreciate all of you being here. So from the controversies to the first match for the U.S. men's national team in Qatar, we've got your World Cup news next. Day two of the World Cup, and the U.S. tied Wales in their first game. You've got to see this goal from Timothy Weah. That's impressive. Um, The U.S. tie happening today amid widespread controversy, of course, over this year's hosts, Qatar. Joining us now is soccer journalist Grant Wall, founder of GrantWall.com. Also, Tommy Vitor host of the World Corrupt podcast and co-founder of Crooked Media. Guys, Grant, thanks so much for being here. Grant, what happened? So you were detained. You were wearing a rainbow shirt. And then what happened? Yeah, I arrived at the stadium. I was checking in through security, but security didn't let me through. They said that I had to take off my shirt. I told them I wouldn't. They detained me for about 30 minutes. They forcibly took my phone, would not give it back. Uh, really angrily tried to get me to take my shirt off uh, and wouldn't. So finally, eventually, uh, a commander of security came down after about 30 minutes and they let me through wearing my shirt uh, and they apologized. FIFA apologized. Uh, FIFA has made it clear that there should be no problem with anyone wearing rainbow gear of any kind at this World Cup, but it's clear that the Qatari regime has other ideas. And, and Grant, what were those 30 minutes like? Was that frightening? Was it just annoying? I mean, what was being detained like? 
Yeah, I mean, it was annoying at first, and then it got a little intense. Um, you know, they made me stand up, turn around, and face a CCTV security camera with someone at the other end looking at me, and I guess rendering judgment of some sort. And uh, this is just another example of, uh, you know, FIFA really doesn't control this World Cup. Uh, it's it's the Qataris, and I think they like to to show that it's illegal to be gay in this country. Qatar, by the way. Uh, so uh, this is something that's been a concern about how would Qatari security officials enforce things on the ground. I didn't mean to make this or intend originally to make this public at all. I was just doing something I, I was told would be very easy to do and wouldn't be a problem at all. Tommy, was it a mistake to have the World Cup in Qatar? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even Seth Blatter, the wildly corrupt former head of FIFA, has said it was a mistake. Uh, and that's because women are treated like second-class citizens in Qatar. Uh, LGBT people are can be in prison for same-sex relationships. And because migrant workers in Qatar have been compared to modern-day slave labor, and the Guardian newspaper reported that something like 6,500 migrant workers have died since Qatar was awarded the World Cup in 2010. So it's, it's, a, it's a stain on FIFA, and it was an absurd choice from the beginning. Tommy, is there any um, advantage to it being there so that all of this bubbles to the surface? I mean, I think of the we have some video of the Iranian uh, team and they made this silent protest today. I think that we can play some of this. So basically, you know, it's not as though all of this has been swept under the rug. This has all just come to the fore. Yeah, listen, I mean, what those Iranian players did today was extraordinarily courageous. I mean, they they didn't sing the national anthem in protest uh, of the treatment of women across Iran. A woman named Masa Amini was murdered by the so-called morality police police several months ago, and there have been protests ever since. But, you know, if the World Cup had been in France, for example, or England or the United States, those Iranian players could have lodged the same protests without thousands of migrant workers being harmed to construct all of these stadiums in Qatar. I mean, that's the problem. Qatar has no soccer history. They had no infrastructure. They literally had to build eight stadiums and they did it on the backs of these migrant laborers who pay money to get jobs in Qatar, go deep into debt and then get these brutally abusive jobs where they're outside, you know, working construction in 100 degree summers, 120 degree summers. So it's just there's no good reason to have this uh uh, tournament in Qatar, it was entirely based on corruption. Grant, it's hard to enjoy it against that backdrop, but I know that that is part of the challenge, certainly for viewers. Tell us about the U.S. team, what we need to know. Well, the U.S. team is very young. They're the first U.S. team to get back to the World Cup in eight years after missing out four years ago. Uh, some of these U.S. players are playing at the top European clubs. One has even won the Champions League, but they're trying to earn back respect for American soccer. And uh, they played a tremendous first half last night. They were up 1-0, scored a really nice goal. Second half, things changed, as it often does in soccer. And Wales uh, was able to get a penalty to equalize late in the game. So you left feeling almost like it was a loss, not a tie, if you were a U.S. fan, just because you felt like a win and three points was really attainable there. I don't think people should think the sky is falling, though. This U.S. team does have a, a decent chance to advance still. They just need to uh, play well the rest of the way. They've got England in the next game, Iran after that, uh, and, and we'll see what happens here. Okay, Grant, Tommy, thank you very much for your perspective. Great to talk to both of you. We're back with the panel Thanks. now. 
John, you know... Well, I'm just laughing because Grant just said several sentences there, and you were nodding as if you understood every John, word John, I know you're outing me right now because you know so well that I know nothing about sports, but I yet do have to do sports. And listen, here's, here's the honest truth. Everything I know about soccer, I learned from Ted Lasso. Which is all you need to know. That's all I need to know. That's all you need to know. Thank you. And Ted Lasso, in fact, weighed in on the game. There were posters from Ted Lasso set up, and Ted Lasso said, Matt, this was to the U.S. player Matt Turner, Matt, well, call me Mary, because I certainly am proud of you, Turner. That's so Ted Lasso, isn't it? That's very sweet. It's very (laughs) sweet. Matt Turner was the starting keeper who played a great game also. I knew that. Um, Let in the PK, but, you know, it's impossible (laughs) to save a PK. Listen. First of all, Grant Wall is the best soccer journalist that America has produced. Everyone should follow him and, and, and pay for his Substack call. He's terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I think my full-time job right now is to watch the World Cup scene. It hasn't said that, but I'm just assuming that's what they want me doing. So well, I'm that- watching every game right now. <laughs> so no one else has to. Selfless. Uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was great. I mean, the, the U.S. played so well for almost all the game, um, but the tie was kind of lousy. I'm just, I'm just astounded that you can end with a tie. Yes. In the, you taught in, me that. Yes. In, in the group stage, yes. you can end with a tie. Once you advance, which hopefully the U.S. will do, that's the knockout stage, and then it goes into overtime and there are penalty shootouts. Okay, great. I'm going to rely on you for all of this, so keep watching. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. Meanwhile, protesters in Iran standing up for women and human rights, but many, of course, are facing brutal retaliation for defying the regime, and some are facing sexual violence. We have a CNN exclusive investigation to show you next. Tonight, a CNN exclusive investigation on the Iranian regime's brutal crackdown against the protests that have broken out since the death of a young woman in police custody for allegedly failing to cover her hair properly. In testimony verified by CNN, brave women and men are coming forward with testimony of sexual assault and rape at the hands of security forces. We want to warn you, the subject matter we are about to report is disturbing. Here's CNN's Nema Albagar. Over these mountains is Iran, a regime that has succeeded in cutting many of its people off from the outside world. But disturbing stories detailing the authorities' brutal retribution, systematic sexual violence against anti-regime protesters have begun leaking out. We've come here to the Kurdish region of Iraq to try and find out more. This is Hannah, not her real name. A Kurdish Iranian woman recently smuggled out of Iran. She fears for her life. After taking off and burning her headscarf on the streets, she was arrested and detained by Iranian intelligence officers. They choose the women who were pretty and suited their appetite. Then the officer would take one of them from the cell to a smaller, private room. They would sexually assault them there. Hannah isn't only an eyewitness. She also was violated. I feel shy talking about this. You can still see what the policeman did. Look here, on my neck. It's purplish. That is why I'm covering it. He forced himself on me. Then a fight broke out with another protester, drawing away Hannah's attacker. Hannah and others could hear screams, and they believe a woman was raped in an interrogation room. Hannah sketched out the police station as she remembers it. She estimates 70 to 80 men and women were together in a main hall that accessed four private interrogation rooms. 
It was in these interrogation rooms, she says, that she was assaulted and others were raped. CNN was able to locate the police station through Hannah's description, eyewitness corroboration and geolocation using key landmarks. It's in the Islamabad neighborhood of Urmia. Based on this testimony and speaking to a number of sources, a pattern of repression comes into focus. Police centers used as filtration points, moving protesters from one location to another, often families left not knowing where their loved ones are held. One Iraq-based Kurdish militant opposition party, PAK, identified over 240 people who they believe are missing within this maze of detention centers. Human rights organizations believe the number is higher, in the thousands. Some of the victims as young as 14. Many are men supporting female protesters, their punishment as severe as the women's. They brought four men over who'd been beaten, screaming intensely in another cell, and one of the men who was tortured was sent to the waiting room where I was. I asked him what all that screaming was about. He said they are raping the men. Based on witness testimony, CNN traced the location to an Iranian army intelligence headquarters. Voiced here by a translator, a 17-year-old boy sent CNN a voice note following his imprisonment. We are withholding his name and location for his safety. When a security guard heard me discussing the rape of the other inmates, he started torturing me all over again. They tortured, raped me from behind. Even as authorities visited sexual violence on protesters, regime figures accused female protesters of prostitution, of, quote, wanting to be naked. Of the incidents of sexual violence against protesters inside Iranian detention facilities, most occurred in the Kurdish-majority areas to the west of Iran, home to a historically oppressed minority. Disturbingly, in some cases, the rapes were filmed and used to blackmail protesters into silence. There has been a real escalation, where female protesters are, as you can see here, being openly assaulted, often sexually. But the violence against women, like the protests, are not confined to the Kurdish areas. They are often focused on locations where the protests are most intense, like here in the capital, Tehran. One of these stories is Armita Abbasis, a typical 20-year-old on social media, sharing her love of animals and music. In social media posts appearing under her name, Abbasi, like many young women in Iran, criticized the regime openly after the process began. Unlike most, she did it without anonymity. It didn't take long for security forces to find and arrest her. Abbasi disappeared. Soon after, whistleblowers began to post on various social media platforms. Medics sharing eyewitness accounts of what had been done to Abbasi. First of all, they say, there were a few plainclothes men with her and they did not let her out of their sight. Even during a private medical examination, they were there. She was my patient. I went to her bedside. They had shaved her hair. She was scared and was trembling. When she first came in, they said it was rectal bleeding due to repeated rape. The plainclothes men insisted that the doctor write that the rape was from prior to her arrest and then after this issue was becoming obvious to all, they changed the entire scenario altogether. 
The details of these leaks were confirmed to CNN by an insider at Imam Ali Hospital, where Abbasi was brought to be examined. In a statement, the government said Abbasi was treated for digestive problems. The medics who treated her said that was not true. The Iranian regime denies the rape, accusing her of leading protests, an allegation which could see her face the death penalty. At this usually busy border crossing between Iraq and Iran, it is deceptively quiet. Those who can cross tell us the noose is tightening on protesters. Authorities have, for decades, used sexual torture against Iranians, and it appears once more a familiar pattern. Sexual violence deployed to enforce an assertion of moral guardianship. Ni'mal Baghir, CNN, Iraqi Kurdistan. Our thanks to Nama for exposing the awfulness of what's happening on the ground. And we'll be right back. So you've probably seen the trailer for the new movie, She Said, about reporters who helped expose disgraced Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. But you've probably not seen the movie itself because very few people did this weekend. It only took in $2.3 million, which is much less than it was supposed to and less than the other movies from this weekend. Why? That's what Hollywood wants to know. Back with us is Mara Escampo, Joe Pinion, and Charlotte Alter. So it's about the sexual assault and harassment that Harvey Weinstein subjected people to. Why is this not movie not doing well? Yeah, and you would think it would do well because it's also about empowerment. You know, these two female reporters who bring him down and he gets his, you know, just due. But I think part of it is that we're still too close to it. Not because we're traumatized and we can't bear to look at it, but it's still playing out. Harvey Weinstein is still in courtrooms. He's still facing trial. Like so it's happening in real it's time. It's happening in real time. And I think you need a little bit of distance to see a recreation and to really appreciate it. The other thing is, I think we're at a time right now where we just want escapism. And when you look at the top movies of the year, it's like time. Tom Cruise and dinosaurs and minions. That's what people want. Charlotte, do you think it says something about um, the Me Too movement that people are done with it? I don't know that people are done with it, but I do just think, uh, I, I do think the vibe has shifted. I mean, we're just in a very different place in 2022 than we were in 2017 when this seemed very new and and oh ever present I ever mean, present, present. And, yeah, yeah. I and so i i don't think the movement is over i just think it has it has it looks very different now um than it did in, in 2017 and so i i almost think that you know a movie like this might have done a lot better if it came out in 10 or 15 years when it wasn't so fresh to people but it but i actually saw it and i liked it oh it's getting critical acclaim that's one of the mysterious things about it people think it's an excellent movie but they're not going to see it what do you think joe i think people wanted to dress up for wakanda it was empowering it's about culture it transcends their everyday life i think when you look at what happened to harvey weinstein i think one he wasn't as popular uh unilaterally i think as many people thought he was within the industry but i think also beyond that people just want to be happy the elections just ended uh timing is everything with these movies i think wrong weekend with wakanda forever at the top of the ticket, so to speak, uh, they didn't really have a chance. Got it. So it has nothing to do with Me Too. You think people just want an escape. Yeah. Okay. Uh, guys, thanks so much for being here. Great talking to all of you tonight. Great Thank having you. you here with me. And thanks to all of you for watching. I'll see you tomorrow night. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.